You're listening to the Sojourn Church New Albany sermon series, This Beautiful Church, Seeing and Being the People of God. In this series, we see the beauty of who we can be because of Christ. We'll learn God's plan for making us mature in Christ so that we become a beautiful church. Now let's hear the word of the Lord. As for you, Titus, promote the kind of living that reflects wholesome teaching. Teach the older men to exercise self-control, to be worthy of respect, and to live wisely. They must have sound faith and be filled with love and patience. Similarly, teach the older women to live in a way that honors God, that they must not slander others or be heavy drinkers. Instead, they should teach others what is good. These older women must train the younger women to love their husbands and their children, to live wisely and be pure, to work in their homes, to do good, and to be submissive to their husbands. Then they will not bring shame on the word of God. In the same way, encourage the young men to live wisely. And you yourself must be an example to them by doing good works of every kind. Let everything you do reflect the integrity and seriousness of your teaching. Teach the truth so that your teaching can't be criticized. Then those who oppose us will be ashamed and have nothing bad to say about us. Slaves must always obey their masters and do their best to please them. They must not talk back or steal, but show themselves to be entirely trustworthy and good. Then they will make the teaching about God, our Savior, attractive in every way. For the grace of God has been revealed, bringing salvation to all people. And we are instructed to turn from godless living and sinful pleasures. We should live in this evil world with wisdom, righteousness, and devotion to God, while we look forward with hope to that wonderful day when the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be revealed. He gave his life to free us from every kind of sin, to cleanse us, and to make us his very own people, totally committed to doing good deeds. You must teach these things and encourage the believers to do them. You have the authority to correct them when necessary, so don't let anyone disregard what you say. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning, Sojourn. Peace be with you. It's good to see you guys. Uh, My name's Jonah. I'm one of the pastors here at Sojourn. Thanks for being with us. Uh, Before we get into this text, that's a thick text, amen? Were y'all listening? That's thick. We got work to do today, people. Uh, So before getting to that, though, we got a big day yesterday. Oh, he's going to be so embarrassed. I can't wait. Justin Schaefer crossed the line 10 years working at Sojourn, the decade 1-0. Raise your hand, Justin, be recognized. That's Justin Schaefer, he's our deacon, leads our worship ministry here. Uh, I don't know if any of you all ever worked at this church before, but it's kind of like dog years, so Justin, that's an internal joke because it's not always the easiest place to work, so that's like 70 years of service to Christ's church. Uh, That's a big deal, and I'm just grateful for you, Justin, grateful for your heart, grateful for your friendship and your partnership in the gospel, so hey, hopefully we retire together. 20, 30 more years, we got it, maybe, we'll see. We'll try hard. So love you, man. Thankful for you. Uh, And congratulations. Ten years is a big deal. Ten years. (laughs) Who would have thought? Okay. Uh, So, again, it's a rich and and challenging text before us this morning. Uh, We could probably do about four or five sermons from this one text. 
Paul has put the gospel in order. So we're following the flow. He says the reason he's writing to Titus is to set things in order to complete the work. They'd started these uh, not really quite church plants yet, but seen a bunch of people come to faith, and now Paul is bringing structure and order to what's been left behind on the island of Crete. So in, in chapter 1 and 2, he's, he's clarified what is the gospel. He's clarified what does godly leadership look like? How should leadership be set in order at a church? This is what we looked at last week. And then the, the gist of chapter 2 here is, is putting the building blocks of the church in order, the most fundamental realities of the church. And, and that's our relationships with each other. So this is to the heart. We've, we've talked about what is a, a beautiful confidence that comes from our, our belief in the gospel. What does beautiful leadership in a church look like? And now we're saying, what, well, what does beautiful relationships look like? Uh, at the heart of the beautiful relationships that are available to us is, is this command from Titus chapter 2, verse 1. Promote the kind of living that reflects wholesome teaching. So we've talked about this every week, the connection between teaching and living. I'm going to read it again. Promote the kind of living that reflects wholesome teaching. Beautiful churches do not choose between right living or right believing, right doctrine or right faith, right confession versus right obedience. You know what I'm saying? Y'all, I want to be like Jarvis Williams and make you guys talk. Were you out to Jarvis' sermon a little while ago? He got everybody responsive. Y'all know the Christians that believe right and are awful to be around. Amen? Amen. You've been around those people. And then, you know what I'm talking about. And then, and then you've been around people that love really well, but they say the craziest things about God. Have you been around those people? Uh, I w- you know, I was at a retreat thing once, and this lady was like, I never read the Bible or pray because I can just feel what's true. And I was like, you are different than me. You know, <laughs> my emotions, if my emotions were true, I, w- I wouldn't be here. You know, I would be in like Colorado living in a tent doing Lord knows what. So we make the mistake. Mis- that was probably too much. Was that too much, Michael? <laughs> uh, you're like, what's wrong with my pastor? That's why I'm in therapy, you guys. Come on. I'm holding it together. It's a thin margin, but I'm trying. So... The point is, we have to hold together wholesome teaching or or, or right teaching that promotes wholesome living. Wholesome is a wonderful word here. It means healthy. It it means sound or or successful. Um, The point is, wholesome teaching, right teaching, is only right or true when it shows up in our living. If we, have, if we have good doctrine, good theology, but that's not showing up in how we live. Did you listen to the liturgy earlier? We say that we love God, but if we don't love people, we're liars. So we can't make a mistake of thinking we get one or the other. Or I just, I'm more of a doctrine person, less of like that lovey-dovey, feely stuff. It's both, wholesome teaching and wholesome living. So as we talk about all the different ways of relating that this passage talks about, older people to younger people, spouses to one another, um, it talked about slaves, the, that's not chattel slavery of the American South. Think more of like an employee. That's a closer idea. When we're talking about work relationships then, uh, there's one principle that undergirds all of it. Again, it's the wholesome teaching and wholesome living. The principle underneath all of it is that Wherever you are as a Christian, you need to be working hard to show others the goodness of God. That's going to be the kind of the core of how we build beautiful relationships. Work hard to show others the goodness of God. You don't need to write that down because I'm going to say that phrase about 30 times in the next 20 minutes. Work hard to show others the goodness of God. Uh, This passage is less about expectations and entitlement. Do you know who you think about the most in your life? Somebody say it. Me. 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 
What is she going to do for me? Why did my boss treat me that way? Why did the person on the road do that to me? That, that's the voice of expectation and entitlement. This passage will be less about what you can expect from somebody or what you deserve, and, and more so, what are your responsibilities in relationships with other people? Do you want close friends? Do you want to do you, do you feel more connected? Do you, do you want a healthy marriage? Do you want a healthy work life? It, I'm assuming you said yes to some of those. Then work hard to show others the goodness of God. That's, that's the message. So, in case you forgot, because we didn't talk about this in, for two weeks now, uh, Crete, that's where these people are, that's where Titus is, that's where these new Christians are, was a lousy place to be. Uh, it was filled with angry, divisive, lazy people. New Christians are emerging from a messed up culture filled with angry, divisive, lazy, slanderous, gossipy people. So Paul begins these instructions about beautiful relationships with the people who had the most influence in that culture, which are the older men. So verse 2, he says, teach the older men to exercise self-control, to be worthy of respect, to live wisely. They must have sound faith and be filled with love and patience. So real, a couple years ago, I said older men in a sermon, and a lot of people got offended. Like, are you calling me old? Um, if you're worried about being old, that just shows how weird our culture is about age. Um, in the scriptures, being older was a sign of respect and authority and, and kind of like, you've made a good job. Uh, Paul, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So if you're, if you're feeling that, that twinge in your chest, like, am I old? Um, probably yes, you know, if you're worried about old. For Paul, just as a litmus test, when he's saying older here, he likely has in mind a man who's 50 and up. So in the, in the eyes of Paul speaking here, older men, 50 and up. What's he saying? Um, why would you say to somebody, hey, calm down and be more loving? The, the only reason you tell somebody to calm down and be more loving is because they're angry and divisive, right? They're, they're mean. Uh, this is what we learned about what Cretans were like. They were hot-tempered, they were divisive, they were slanderous. Uh, the older men in Crete, here's what they're doing. They're, they're sitting at Colkin all day. They're complaining about kids these days. They're the get-off-my-lawn type of guys. They're bitter, they're angry. You know, don't raise your hand now in case this is you, but you know the 50-plus people that are bitter and angry? Life didn't go their way. They get to 50, 55, 60, and there's a bite to them. There's an anger and a bitterness to them. That's who these guys are. They're losing their tempers and they're having the, the, the kids these days conversation. Uh, there's lots of interesting words here. I'm going to point out one, though, self-control there. Uh, there's going to be a little bit of grammar happening here. Um, the root of this word is similar. It's, it's related. This word self-control, when Paul is using it, is related to the word of encouragement. There, there's a combination here that Paul is talking about between being able to have yourself under control and being able to speak life into other people. You see the words that he used to describe what these men should be like? Filled with love and patience. If you're in the 50-up crowd, so just think, how do your words to the younger generation, what do they, what do they sound like to you? Are, are they more towards affirmation and encouragement, or are they more towards criticality and condemnation? Um, are you a get-off-my-lawn type of older person? How do you talk about Generation Z? How do you talk about the millennials? And I'm sorry, I that, this isn't in my notes here, but you know who's, whose parents were the millennials, right? You know who raised those kids, right? Let the reader understand. Maybe you got to go take a walk and, and figure out what I'm saying there. Um, 
What is your posture towards the younger generation if you're in that 50 plus crowd, particularly 50 and up men? Are your words critical? Are they critical or are they empowering? Do you know how starved the 30 to 40 year old crowd is for encouragement? Genuine encouragement, not the pie in the sky. You can do anything kind of encouragement, but words that say, I see you, I believe in you, you can do it. Versus, oh, you guys, you know, in my day, when I was 30, you know what? Instead, fill your words with love and patience. This is sound faith. This is healthy, successful faith. Older men, fill your life with love and patience. Speak words of empowerment, encouragement, and hope to the younger men in particular. You have no idea how powerful your words are. You have no idea how powerful your words are. If you're an older man, work hard to show the goodness of God by cultivating godly character filled with love and patience. It moves from the older men to older women. I think this is a little bit funny, so hang in, hang in there with me. I know it's 9.30 or whatever. Similarly, teach the older women to live in a way that honors God. They must not slander others or be heavy drinkers. Instead, they should teach others what is good. Now, why would you have to write a letter to the church and say, hey, 50 up women, stop, don't be heavy drinkers? Why you got to say that? Why you got to say, don't be slanderers, don't be gossips? Why you got to say that? Here's the image. If the men, if the men are at Colkin, or I think of like an Italian cafe and they're all drinking espresso and smoking cigarettes and they're mad at the, the younger people. That's what the older men are doing. The ladies, the older ladies, they're at the country club on their third mimosa at 9.30 a.m. talking about how out of control Becky next door is. You know, they're having a, a prayer meeting at church. You ever had that? The, the prayer meeting or someone calls you for prayer and really they just want to tell you about how awful their neighbor is or what a mess their sister is? The older women in Crete, are day-drinking, drunk, gossiping, slanderous women. So, ladies, 50 up, how are you spending your days? Have your phone calls to ask for prayer turned into gossip, to slander, to chit-chat? Are you pursuing and empowering younger women? Pursuing and empowering younger women. I don't know if anybody wants me to talk to them or not. Do you know what the younger women in our church are doing right now? By and large, we'll see here in a second, they're talking about wives with children. The, by and large, they're trying to figure out how to raise these three kids or take care of this house. They're exhausted and confused and overwhelmed. I remember when my wife and I had our second kid, our first two kids are 15 months apart, and I was pretty sure we were going to die. And when I walked into church on Sunday and I saw adults with like a five-year-old and a four-year-old or an eight-year-old and a seven-year-old, I was like, you survived! Just seeing that, because no one was saying like it's going to be this awful or it's going to be this difficult, but just seeing it happen. If you raised kids, you have such words of power. What are you doing with your day? Who are the younger women that you are reaching out to and empowering and encouraging? Put down the drinks is what Paul is saying. Say, Tell them to stop drinking all day and instead train the younger women in what's good. So he goes on. This is where we'll spend the bulk of our time. These older women must train the younger women to love their husbands and their children, to live wisely and be pure, to work in their homes, to do good, to be submissive to their husbands. We're going to spend the bulk of our time here because of all the passages in this and all the verses in this passage. This is the one that's hurt the most people. This is the one that's been twisted, misinterpreted, and used to abuse people. So hopefully we can bring some correction here. So I don't, yeah, just leave that up there for a second, because I'm going to be referring to it quite a bit. So first of all, notice how it says younger wives, um, young women to love, what's that word right there? To love whose husbands? 
their husbands. This is a passage about how young women relate to their husbands. Is this a passage about how women relate to men? No, that was not nearly as strong as we need it to be. Is, we're going to do it again, Brittany, okay? This is a Jarvis Williams moment. Is this passage about how all women relate to all men? No. no. And if someone wants to tell you it is, you have the Bible. This isn't a cultural thing. or This is a Bible thing. Young women, their husbands, their children. This isn't how all women relate to all children. This is how these women relate to their husbands and their children. I'm going to say it just one more time. This is not the Bible's teaching on how all women relate to all men. This is how young wives relate to their husbands and their children. So now we're going to work, talk about three words here. Work, homes, and submission. Y'all excited? Anybody feel it? Work, homes, and submission. Let's go. Don't be afraid of the Bible. Don't ever be afraid of the Bible. Don't ever be afraid of God's teaching and his instructions in your life. Don't ever be afraid. All of his commands and invitations lead to life. Okay, work. The word work, 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 work. work. I'm sorry, it just happened. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm so nervous today. I'm so nervous. I didn't preach last week. Jonathan Pennington's a hero of mine, and he preached, and I'm intimidated now. Okay, work. This means to carry out household duties. Um, Household duties. So first, before we talk about what household or submission or work, what are we saying here? Uh, Remember, what are the older women doing? They're day drinking and gossiping. And so what does he tell them to teach the young women to do? Get to work. Godly women work. They're not like the older women that are sitting around drinking and gossiping. Godly women get to work. They are active, diligent workers. So for a contextual application here, and and I'm sorry if if one of you got one of these shirts on or a bumper sticker on your car, but like, ladies, enough with the rosé all day stuff. You know what I mean by that? You go to Hobby Lobby and it's like rosé all day or I can't even. You can't even what? What are we talking about here? Uh, Enough with the adulting. Like all of these statements about it's I'm just going to give up. And it's like life is supposed to be hard. It's hard for everybody and godly women work hard. We don't find ways to shirk it. We don't find ways to avoid it or complain about it. Just be prepared. Your life will be difficult, especially if you're married and especially if you have young children. So godly women get to work. And older women are to help younger women get to work. Specifically, Titus is told here, specifically, they get to work in their homes. People use this word, and this is in our church. If you think this sounds crazy, then you know why I lost my hair and I look the way I do. This is in our church, okay? People are believing this and teaching this and and going to therapy to recover from it, meeting with pastors to recover from it. Verses like this are used to tell women, don't go to college. Don't ever leave the home. Don't ever get a job. All you're supposed to do is learn how to cook really well and raise children. Like a woman's place is in the home. Uh, this Verses like this are, are told, yeah. Basically, you're telling women, shut up and stay home. Shut up and go home. That's what this has communicated or been twisted to mean. So hopefully we can bring some healing. Uh, this is one of the most common Bible mistakes people make. And I'm going to give you guys a big word here. This is a seminary word. You're all going to feel it's a phrase, actually. It's two different ideas brought together. So it's called anachronistic eisegesis. Okay? Don't you feel smarter already? It's up there, right? Say it. Let's all try to say it together one time. It'll feel good. Anachronistic eisegesis. Now, what, what does that mean? Let's go. We're doing it today. Okay. Anachronistic means out of time or the wrong time. And so here's an anachronism. It would, be like, it would be like saying that 
in Exodus, Moses is giving instructions on how to use an iPhone. You see the problem there? Did Moses ever have an iPhone? Did he ever have the concept of an iPhone? No. So <laughs> you guys were like, oh, no, no, did he use Moses? <laughs> no, right? <laughs> iPhones didn't exist. <laughs> iPhones didn't exist when Moses was alive. So an, an anachronism, to make an anachronistic mistake, is to take something from the modern time and assume that's what it is in the ancient time. You follow me? It's out of time. It's, it's, it's in the wrong timeline here. And then eisegesis is when we take something and impose it into the scriptures. We do this all, every one of us does this all the time with our cultural preferences, whether think about your politics or your, your, in this passage, your beliefs of how a home should run, which, yeah, I'm, I just filtered myself right there. We take something outside of the scriptures, not taught by the scriptures, and we force the scriptures to read that. So ice. That E-I-S, that's a Greek preposition that means into. So you're taking something out here and you're jamming it into the Bible. So an anachronistic eisegesis, that is taking something that's out of time and forcing it into something in the scriptures. And so here's what I mean. If you think the word homes here, uh, other translations you'll see, it'll, it'll say household. The household is probably a little bit of a closer translation. But if you think home Today or household today means the same thing as what a household meant 2,000 years ago. Welcome to the land of anachronistic eisegesis. Let me put that more simply. Household here does not mean what we think of today when we think of as simply a home. When, when we hear household duties today, most of us think about raising kids and doing dishes. So women don't need to be educated. Uh, don't go be a doctor. Don't go be a lawyer. Don't go be a teacher. Stay home and stay quiet. To the ladies in Crete, household meant something more like family business. So when you read home or household here, get in your mind something more like family business. And let me, let me try to, I'll talk about this <laughs> biblically and culturally. Um, so first of all, back then, everyone worked at home. You ever think about that? For the vast majority of human history, there was no concept of going to work. You woke up at work because all of your work was at home. It wasn't until the Industrial Revolution, which was about 100 years ago, that there became this idea that a person would leave their home in the morning, go somewhere away from their family to work, and then come home. So here at Crete, if you went to work, you were at home. So everybody worked at home. Uh, the household was where every job took place. Uh, I found this, this uh, Greek military historian. So this is like a macho man, right? He's, he's leading military stuff. He's a politician and a philosopher, this dude named Xenophon, who is a contemporary here, describing what the relationship between a husband and wife, that partnership looked like in Greek culture, which applies to these people in Crete. So here's a quote. He says, husband and wives are partners in the household. And then he goes on over several pages to say, Greek wives are responsible to supervise and care for all the household workers, manage the budget, oversee the making of clothes, and the quality of storage supplies. You get the, some of the picture here of what we talk about with the household here. They had servants. They had supplies. She's making plans. They were partners. Yes, they had distinct roles and responsibilities. Husbands usually dealt with housework that required more physical strength. Wives usually dealt with work that required more management and oversight. 
You could think about men sweating outside and women inside working the budgets and books. They were leading the staff meetings. They were sending out the plans for the household workers. The Christian, listen, the Christian wife is not at home waiting for her husband to come home from work. Like that that's her mission in life, to sit back and be like, maybe he'll come home and my life will be complete. Maybe you need to go read Proverbs 31 again. The, the Christian wife is hustling. A godly woman is busy feeding employees, overseeing staff, buying properties, creating business plans, making money, providing for her children, preparing for winter and disasters. Like she is working. Just a couple of verses from Proverbs 31. The the godly woman is clothed with strength and dignity. She laughs without fear of the future. When she speaks, her words are wise. She gives instructions with kindness. She carefully watches everything in her household and suffers nothing from laziness. So this idea, we just got to get the idea of the 1950s housewife, suburban American housewife, out of our minds. That is not the biblical picture of womanhood. Paul is not saying go home here. When he's giving Titus instructions of what to teach the younger women, what are older women to teach the younger women? Stop drinking, get off the couch, and get to work. He's not saying stay home and be silent. He's saying young wives, work hard to show your household the goodness of God, your husband, your children, your family business, whatever the shared mission of your family is, work hard to show the goodness of God. So that covers work and that covers household. Work, we're talking about household responsibilities. They're active and they're busy. Um, uh, Household, think family business. And now everyone's favorite, submission. Submission. Uh, So let's do some more grammar here real quick. It's in the middle voice, so you can go learn what that means. You can write down middle voice and Google what is the Greek middle voice. What it means is that this is a personal choice that a young wife makes to her husband. It's a personal choice, a voluntary choice. It's also in the present tense, which means this is an ongoing action. It's not like I go to the wedding and I say, you know, I have now submitted husband and that's it. It's a personal choice and an ongoing action to take a certain posture towards her husband, a certain attitude towards her husband. So what does it mean? What is biblical submission? Biblical submission is a posture of service. It's an attitude towards another. So when you see submission in the Bible, this is talking about a posture of service to someone else and an attitude, a a disposition towards someone else. Biblical Submission is not about who makes the decision. Can we say that one more time slowly? Biblical submission is not about who makes the decision. Paul makes this really clear in another letter uh, to Ephesians. In Ephesians 5, 21. So this is the great marriage passage. You've probably heard this read at weddings. And just the next time you read this, you, you got to know verse 5 or verse 22, wives submit yourselves to your husbands, is a continuation of the thought of chapter 5, verse 21. Some Bibles break those up, but that's, that's one thought in the letter. So 21 begins, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. For wives, this means submit to your husband as to the Lord. For husbands, this means love your wives, just as Christ loved the church. 21 through 25 in Ephesians 5 are one continuous thought. Husbands and wives are called to submit to each other. If submission, here's what I was taught. Submission means you guys talk it out, and if you disagree, the wife has to defer to the husband. Have you heard that before? Yep. Uh, When we're in a marital conflict, the husband gets the final vote, right? So 
If submission means that, how do we get out of the pickle here of Ephesians 5.21 saying, submit to each other? I, well, I give my deal breaker to you. No, I give my deal breaker to you. No, I give my... And then you'll both die because you can't figure out where to go to dinner that night. You know? Where do you want to eat? I don't... Wherever you want to eat. Where do you want... Wherever you want to eat. Submission is a posture of service. Here, talking about to our spouses. It goes both ways. It's a posture of service. It's an attitude. It's a disposition towards the other. Rooted, listen, rooted in our posture towards Christ. Did you see what it says to the wives? Wives, serve your husband like you serve God. Husbands, serve your wife like Christ served the church. Doesn't that clarify it just a little bit when we understand what, what biblical submission is saying? Here's, I know some of you are skeptical, so you might want to take some notes. Our manuscripts, every sermon manuscript is on Right Now Media. You can go back and read all of this. Um, but you got to know, submission, this concept, this word, is part of every Christian's life, not just wives. Submission, here, we got a quote now. Submission can be used for mutual or equal authorities, as prophets who are subject to other prophets, allowing each other to speak and evaluate each other's messages. Christians to Christians the son to the father, people served, and those serving in ministry. A few verses later, submission is, is commanded of every Christian as our posture towards government authorities. If you submit to no one, you are not following Jesus. Christian submission doesn't mean we become someone's subject, which you all get this when we talk about the government, you all get that it's not a blind ticket to just do whatever they tell us to do. Of course, we don't follow them into sin. Of course, we don't serve them uh, to enable their sin. But for you wives who have been hammered with this passage and told to stay silent and be home and don't go to work and you, you can't ever speak up, a biblical wife has a voice and a choice. A Christian woman has a voice and a choice. All women do. But in the church, you got to hear that because it seems like we've gotten this more backwards. Every wife has a voice and a choice. And if either of those are taken from you, if your voice or your choice are taken from you, that's not submission, that's abuse. If your voice or your choice is taken from you, that is not submission, that is abuse. God does not command you to stay in abusive situations. If any of that is going on, maybe you need to call the police. You certainly need to call one of your pastors. Nobody should tolerate abuse. You will never see the scriptures telling us to be robbed of our humanity, our basic being made in the image of God. A biblical marriage is co-equals serving each other by fulfilling their distinct roles. Are husbands and wives just the same? No, of course not. We're obviously different. Does that mean we all do the same things? No, of course not. We have distinct roles. But these are worked out together. Here's, this was so crazy to me about the tiebreaker stuff. You don't need a tiebreaker in marriage. You need to learn how to talk to one another. It's normal to argue. Please hear me, Christian. It's normal to argue with your spouse. It's normal to disagree, and it's normal to be confused. And for most of human history, the way that Christians went about dealing with that, particularly in a marriage, is they talked to one another, and they did this thing called working it out. 
God on the same page. We should expect unity and we should fight for it. And we keep talking. And if you get stuck, you ask for help. If you're stuck and you're alone, get in a community group, start serving, invite other people to speak in and speak up for you. We must, we must embrace and celebrate this vision and reject the abuses twisting this passage has created. And to put it simply, we must reject the Cretan version of womanhood and instead embrace the biblical vision of womanhood. We don't sit around drinking all day and saying how bad these other women are. What do we do instead? We work hard for the family business. We build our family up. We do crazy things like talk with our spouse. What do you want out of life? Where do you think God is leading us? What, what are your responsibilities? What are your roles? So here's a simple way to put it. Younger wives, put down the booze and pick up the family budget. If you need a couple of bees, you know, and I'm not saying every woman has to do the budget. I'm saying work hard to show your family the goodness of God. Do you have a posture of service towards your, your husband and your children? Are you a supportive, affirming, serving presence in your household? Or are you rolling around with your rosé all day shirts? You see, the, you see the difference in these images. Are you building your family's business, whatever stage of life you're in? Are you active? Are you busy? A word that I've really loved lately is generative. Are you bringing life into your family, into your household, into your job, whatever it is? Are there clearly delegated responsibilities in your home? Who does what here? Are you carrying a load? There's all kinds of questions that you guys can work together to get on the same page. But the principle being taught here is young wives, work hard to show your family the goodness of God. Work hard to show your family the goodness of God. Now, Paul has fewer words for the younger men, and I'll leave it to you guys to speculate as to why this might be. I have some theories, but I'm not totally sure. In verse 6, he says, in the same way, in the same way, encourage the young men to live wisely. Similar idea of being self-controlled that was talked about with the older men earlier. Fill your life with love and patience, young men. Fill your life with love and patience. Don't demand your wife serve you. Live wisely and serve her. A man worthy of respect is easy to serve. Let the lady say amen. A man worthy of respect is easy to serve. A man who is committed to empowering and serving his wife builds up his household. Paul tells Titus to show them what this looks like by how he himself lives. Verse 6, you yourself must be an example to them by doing good works of every kind. You'll notice in this passage, Paul never says, demand this of others. Make sure they do this for you. Instead, to the older people, he says, teach the younger people. Teach them. Show them. Model this. You see, that's the essence of his command to Titus. Be this so that they can see it. Older men, teach the younger people. Take responsibility for your life, your circumstances, and work hard to show others the goodness of God. Focus less on what others are not. And instead, Work hard to become a godly man, a godly woman, a godly husband, a wife, a parent. He mentioned slaves right after this. Again, that's the idea. Think more of like employee. Again, it's not chattel slavery of the U.S. South, so just get that out of your mind. He says to them, work hard and do a great job. Work hard and do a great job. In every one of these roles, when he gives these instructions to work hard and show others the goodness of God, look at the reasoning behind all of it. If women live this way, then they will not bring shame on the word of God. 
If young men live this way, then those who oppose us will be ashamed and having nothing bad to say about us. If employees work this way, then they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive in every way. Do you see what's happening here? Do you see the motivation and the reasoning? Do you see the secret sauce of beautiful relationships? Work hard to show others the goodness of God. Let your life be a testimony to the goodness of God. Show them that Christianity works. Anyone feel disconnected this morning? You don't have to raise your hands. At home, you can raise your hands. You feel disconnected. You feel far from your community. You're disappointed in your friendships or your work. How much time do you spend wondering what they will do for you? What a job will provide for you, how your friends should be treating you, what this group or that person should be doing for you. This is not the way of, the, of Christ or the way to beautiful relationships. A beautiful Christian is one who works hard to show others the goodness of God, to live in a way that shows Jesus is attractive in every way. The reason for this that Paul tells Titus is because our gospel witness is at stake. If we learn to love one another this way, Spouses, friends, older people to younger people, employees and employers. The world will see how beautiful Jesus is. It will make our witness compelling. And I know some of this is overwhelming. I know we fail and I know I fail. I know so many of us are tired and we have baggage of, with all of this, which is why after giving such thick, heavy instructions, Paul ends this chapter the way he does. You have to see that the Christian life is fundamentally a response. It's not something we conjure up ourselves. It's not, it's not a response to a spouse or a friend. It's not a response to an older or younger brother or sister, but a response to God himself. We live these ways as a response to what God has done. And lest you've forgotten what God has done, hear the word of the Lord. The grace of God has been revealed bringing salvation to all people. We are instructed to turn from godless living and sinful pleasures. We should live in this evil world with wisdom, righteousness, and devotion while we look forward with hope to that wonderful day when the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ will be revealed. Listen, he gave his life to free us from every kind of sin, to cleanse us, and to make us his very own people totally committed to doing good deeds. He gave his life to free us from every sin, cleanse us, make us his very own people totally committed to doing what's good. So we continually call our minds to how Christ served us and laid down his rights. I was, I was talking with Pastor Stephen the other day. He said the only competition taught in the scriptures is, is the the competition to outdo one another in showing honor. Christian, Christianity is a race to the bottom. It's the pursuit of downward mobility because down there is where we find Christ who laid down his life for us. All the way to a cross he went down, all the way to the shedding of his blood so we could be free, forgiven, reconciled, and made beautiful. Because of what Christ has done for us, we work hard to show others the goodness of God. And that's why every week we call our minds back to the night he was betrayed. He took a loaf of bread, blessed it, thanked God for it, and broke it. And he said to his friends, this is my body, 
given for you. Eat this and remember what I've done for you. In the same way, when the meal was over, he took a cup of wine. He said, this is the cup of the new covenant sealed with the shedding of my blood, not made possible, sealed with the shedding of my blood. Drink this in remembrance of me. Thank you for listening. Keep in touch with Sojourn New Albany on Facebook or download the free Sojourn Collective app for iPhone or Android where you can see our full library of sermon series, audio and video, discussion questions, event calendar, ministries, and much more.